God chose a lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I was dead sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover when I was bad sin. God chose to die for me. Boom, five, eight. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Chose a lover. God chose a lover. Boom, five, eight. Hello, good morning, everybody. Hello, Jessica, Catherine, Joshua. I see Grogu. I just feel uh, the need to pray even more than I have already, because this is a big one. There's a lot of a lot of technical difficulties already going on. What a coincidence! Um, so, Father, we're asking that you would bless this time, bring clarity, precision, uh, break chains, lift burdens, give insight, strengthen your people and their discernment. Pray that you make this time profitable in Jesus' name, amen. Let me know if the audio is clear. Had some audio issues earlier. Um, today, we're talking about false prophets, false prophecy. Um, here's kind of the outline for today. We're talking about the markers, the key markers of a false prophet. Um, I'm not gonna get into it yet. <laughs> We're going to talk about how to recognize false prophets. We're going to talk about the ultimate example of a false prophet, in my opinion. Um, we're going to talk about what, what do we do with false prophets, biblically. Um, are there counterfeit visions, prophecies, like legitimate supernatural insight, divination that is taking place uh, that's a counterfeit? Um, and then why does God allow false prophets to exist? What's the purpose behind God allowing that and overseeing uh, sovereignly that that would happen? Um, and then can prophets get it wrong? Um, we'll talk about that and what I believe are prophets infallible, um, like perfect mouthpieces that never get it wrong. And then um, we'll talk about how do you discern when someone gives you a prophetic word, a dream, a vision that doesn't violate scripture. Uh, it's, it's aligned with the, with the word of God. Okay. And then um, what do you do when there's competing words or something, maybe uh, two different people come into your life and speak different things? How do you weigh that and discern that? Now, I did say that today I would talk more about the discerning dreams and visions and, and clarifying how we actually walk through that. Um, that was my original intent, but with all the scripture we're going to go through today, I just don't have time. So I'm going to push that off for the last episode, which we'll go through on, on Friday. Okay, today's Wednesday. And we'll talk through that, okay? So I know a lot of people jumped on here hoping to get discernment and more of a rubric for give me, you know, key markers for how to, what to do with a dream and vision, how to know it's from God, what do I do about it, how do I navigate it? Uh, that will be more for, like the pr practical guidelines for prophecy will be for the last episode, all right? 
So I'm going to get into it because I don't have a lot of time. Uh, there's a lot of scripture to get to. The, the, the biggest thing when it comes to false prophecy and false prophets is that everyone seems to have a different standard for what a false prophet even is. And so you got discernment ministries all across the YouTube space and all across, you know, the online space in, in general. Th these discernment ministries that are very quick to throw down the, the false prophet card. They're very quick to sound the trumpet. They're very quick to um, you know, just label someone a false prophet. And uh, that's either legitimate and it's reasonable or they're too quick to do that. So how do we navigate that? When is, when is someone a legitimate false prophet versus someone who maybe just got it wrong? Because doesn't the same thing happen in scripture when it comes to teaching and preaching and declaring the word of God? If a preacher of God's word that has a good motivation, good heart, good intent, loves Christ, loves his church, walks faithfully with God, stands on the gospel, if they accidentally um, say something that the scripture isn't clearly communicating, maybe they misinterpret a passage, uh, maybe they add something in that they really believe is there, but it's not, and they're drawing out an interpretation, um, uh, they're drawing, <laughs> stupid chat, you guys, and they're trying to draw an interpretation that isn't necessarily there validated by scripture. Does that make them a false teacher? And a lot of people would say, well, no, they, they just, they made a mistake. Okay, so let's have the same standard for, for prophecy. And you go, well, prophecy is treated differently. Prophets have a different role. I'm going to show you why I believe we should be a, here's the standard for what a false prophet is, okay? Jeremiah chapter 23. I think in the Old Testament, here's the clearest and best description, if, at least in the Old Testament, of what a false prophet is, okay? And then we're going to build from here. This is more foundational, okay? Jeremiah prophesies concerning the false prophets of Israel. My heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. Because of the Lord and his holy words, the land is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns. The pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Now watch. Their course is evil. Their course is evil and their might is not right. Both the prophet and the priest are ungodly. So Jeremiah is accusing the prophets and priests in Israel of being ungodly, anti-God, rebellious, uh, anti his law, anti his word. Even in my house, I found their evil. Okay, so the prophet and priest in the days of Jeremiah are marked by evil. Okay, therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness. It's as if they're not standing on solid ground, they're slipping around, walking around in the darkness, and eventually that's gonna overtake them and they'll be exposed for the fakes they are, okay? In wh into which they'll be driven and they'll fall. Now the Lord says, I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. So false prophets, their impending doom, their ultimate destiny, you might say, where they're headed is punishment, disaster. Okay, now for the Israelite prophets and false prophets and false dreamers of dreams and false fake priests, their disaster is more physical in nature. It's physical perishing. They'll go down to, you know, the pits of the earth. In the province of Samaria, I saw an unsavory thing. Now, Samaria is kind of that uh, control center of Israel, because at least in this time, Jeremiah's day, Israel has been separated. You have Judah, and then you have um, the rest of the tribes that are ruled from Samaria. So the king was in Samaria. And he says, I saw an unsavory thing in Samaria. The prophets there that usually give the king counsel, they prophesied by Baal. In other words, whatever word they're giving, whatever vision or dream they're relaying, 
whatever name they're speaking in, it's in the name of a false god, and it's based in an actual false god. It's not based in the true and living God. In other words, there's a deceptive evil spirit involved. There's a spirit of idolatry at least. Okay, whether or not they're being led by uh, demonic spirits or wicked evil spirits, or they're just operating by a spirit on their own of rebellion and disobedience, okay, they're prophesying by the false god Baal. And they're leading the people of Israel astray. Okay, so already you're getting a flavor for what a false prophet is. Um, they prophesy, not always in the name of false gods, but at least uh, they, they speak from a spirit that is not according to the spirit of God. There is the spirit of the world, and then there's the spirit of God. There's really nothing in between. You're either for him or you're against him. And so these prophets are speaking from a spirit that is anti-God, and they're leading people astray. This is not accidental. This is not they're making a mistake and we didn't mean to lead you astray. There's intentional deceit going on. Uh, there's impending disaster coming. There's ungodly living. There's evil that is marking their life. Their lives are marked by evil and ungodliness, okay? Um, in the prophets of Jerusalem, though, I've seen a horrible thing. So now we're going to shift and the camera's going to move to actually what's happening in Jerusalem instead of Israel. Because remember, the, it's been split. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. So this is not a false prophet who accidentally stumbled into deception after living a life of godliness and, and living in the truth. Their life, their walk is marked by lies. Their lives are being led by lies and deception. And they're bringing other people into that and leading Israel and Judah into that same deception. They commit idolatry. In other words, at least so far, uh, the false prophets' lives are marked by this sensuality, worldly, sexual immorality. There's adultery going on. Um, not just spiritually violating the, the covenant with God, uh, but actually committing physical adultery. In other words, there's no regard for the law of God. So that no one turns from his evil. So they're living in evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> um, and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, I will feed them with bitter food and give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. And so the prophets were the source of direction and guiding for not just the king, but also the people of Israel at large. They were entrusted with the, with the you might say, the, the kind of caring and shepherding, not on their own, but the prophets had a, a role to play in that guiding the people of Israel, helping them navigate life, helping them you know, walk in the ways of God. That was their role, alongside the priest, alongside the king. Um, the prophets, though, are living in ungodliness, and they're leading people into that. In other words, from the prophets' mouths, not only is deception coming out, but ungodliness is being encouraged. Thus says the Lord of hosts, don't listen to the words of the prophets. They fill you with vain hopes. Okay, that's why false prophets um, are so destructive. And that's why we have this episode, because some of you might be listening to false prophets and not knowing it. Some of you might be giving your attention and giving yourself over to the leading of a false prophet, and you're letting them speak into your life. You're letting them have a hold on, on, on the decisions you're making. You're letting them influence how you're living your life and what decisions you're making and what you think faith is and what you think about God. And there might be even this supplying you a fake, vain hope. In other words, you're trusting in something that isn't going to happen. You're hoping for something that is going to ultimately let you down and you'll be disappointed. 
And so false prophets fill people with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, whatever they're speaking from, it's sourced in themselves. Their own human mind, their own brain has concocted and imagined what they're telling the people of Israel. It did not originate with God. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it's okay, it'll be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster is coming upon you. Who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord? In other words, God is saying, none of these prophets who are declaring a word in my name have actually stood in my counsel. They're not receiving counsel from me. They're not seeking me. They're not with me enough to, 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 to meditate on the law and grow in the knowledge of the God of Israel. They're not with me enough to hear and understand my counsel. They're actually standing in the counsel of the wicked. They're not seeing and hearing his word. Who has paid attention to his word and listened? Behold, the storm of the Lord wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest, it'll burst upon the head of the wicked. Okay, and then it's gonna talk about the judgment that's coming. God says, I didn't send them, yet they ran. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. If they stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people. This is actually being instructed by God from his law. This is actually learning the ways of God from the Torah. This is actually standing in the counsel of God, praying, seeking his face, according to what's outlined in the Torah. And the prophets that are being accused here aren't doing that. So one of the key markers of a false prophet is they don't actually seek genuine counsel from God. They're not after the, the, the word of the Lord. They're not desiring truth. They don't desire to know the Lord. They don't want his counsel. Otherwise, if they had been that kind of person, they would have proclaimed the words of God to the people. In other words, these false prophets had on the table the truth of God available to them. They had the opportunity to proclaim the word of God to the people, to know his word, to actually stand in his counsel and declare prophetic truth, and they chose not to. They would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil deeds. In other words, these same prophets choosing rebellion, choosing sexual immorality, choosing, you know, um, disobedience, they're, they had the choice that they rejected. They had the choice to actually be a true prophet of God. They rejected that opportunity and chance. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so I don't see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? In other words, these false prophets think they're getting away getting away with their conniving and skeeving and deception and profiting off of people and filling people with vain hopes. I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. So just because someone claims to be speaking in the name of God doesn't mean they really are. Just because someone attaches Jesus' name to something they say doesn't mean God is, God's authority is behind that. They say, I've dreamed, I've dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets? They prophesy lies. Jeremiah will go on to say that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? So these people are being led by the deception of their own hearts. And that doesn't mean like, oh, poor babies. That means they've already chosen to reject the word of God. They've rebelled against him. They've positioned themselves to be vulnerable to lies and deception and seeing visions of their own imaginations, right? And so now here we go. They're positioned and vulnerable to the deception that they're perpetuating, okay? They think to make my people forget my name by their dreams. Whoa, do you see it? 
So their own heart is giving them deceptive words. They think, so this is not accidentally happening. This is, they are deciding, thinking, hey, let's make the people of God forget his name. By their dreams, they tell one another, even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. So the false prophets, in other words, are directing people to false gods. They're saying, go that way. They're encouraging sin. They're encouraging rebellion and disobedience. In other words, they're actually moving people in the direction of false gods and encouraging idolatry. That's their intention. That's not accidental. This is actually the intent of their heart. What they're lying, what they're seeing, what they're deceiving people with is intended to cause people to forget the name of God and go after Baal. Starting to get a real strong idea of what a false prophet is. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. These people who see dreams or claim to have dreams don't actually have the word of God and don't keep it faithfully. What does straw have in common with wheat, declares the Lord. Isn't my word like fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets. Not only is God against the prophets in what they're saying, he's against their hearts and what they're concocting and manufacturing and imagining. And ultimately, he's against their lifestyle. So this is a perfect storm. These false prophets live wicked. They think wicked. They desire wicked. They encourage wickedness. They prophesy wickedness and deception. It, it all comes together, okay? So the deceptions of their heart, the fake dreams they're dreaming, and the visions they, they claim to be seeing, the false words that they're pro, you know perpetuating, it's actually connected to a life of rejection and rebellion and disobedience. Behold, I'm against the prophets who use their tongues and say, this thus saith the Lord. I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams. God is not against dreams. He's against those who prophesy lying dreams and know it. They're consciously aware of it. Who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I didn't send them or charge them. So they don't profit this people at all. In other words, false prophets have no substance. They don't offer you anything of value in terms of your relationship with God. It's empty. It's vain. It amounts to nothing. It leaves you high and dry. It feels like something in a moment. Maybe it's like an emotional high. Maybe it's like, let's just whip them up. But at the end, you're like, that actually didn't do anything for me. <clears throat> when one of these people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what's the burden of the Lord? Well, <clears throat> you'll say to them, you're the burden of the Lord. And God's going to cast you off. Now, that right there, as I surveyed the Old Testament at least, that's the clearest picture and the best description of what a false prophet is. So that you have all these different characteristics in mind of what a false prophet is. And all the scriptures I'm about to give you are going to validate what the picture I just painted. So we're not just taking this general picture of, well, that was just happening in Jeremiah's day. Now we're going to validate that with, and supplement that with, with other scriptures to say, no, there's actually, this happens a lot. Jeremiah chapter 5, it says they, they've spoken falsely of the Lord. And they've said, he'll do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. They're rejecting the clear word Jeremiah is declaring. And other prophets are declaring in the name of God. Nor shall we see sword or famine. When Jeremiah is saying, by the, the word of God, no, there's actually disaster coming. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Now, you can say, well, the, the, the prophetic word is not in them. 
Also, the reason why there's no true prophetic word in them is that they don't have the already revealed word of God in them. They have not meditated on that to know it, to love it, to treasure it, to delight in the Lord. These don't seem to be people like the psalmist. The psalmist says, in your law I delight. I love meditating on your word. I just sit at your feet. I delight in you, O God. That's not these prophets. So what makes them prophetically disabled, you might say, or unhelpful, is that they don't have the already revealed word of God, the Torah, you know, in their hearts and guiding them. So these are people who, do, who are living life outside and without the law of God and the truth of God that they have revealed to them at that time. <clears throat> Jeremiah, I know we're in Jeremiah quite a bit. We're not going to stay here, but just giving you a flavor. Jeremiah spends a lot of his ministry uh, just coming against false prophets. Same with Ezekiel. Oh, Lord God, behold, the prophets say, you won't see the sword. You won't have famine. I'll give you peace in this place. And the Lord said, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. They're giving people a false sense of security. They're saying, you're good. You're good. It's like telling someone who's driving towards a cliff, keep driving, you're good. That's destructive. You're going to be a reason they die. You're a part of that. These false prophets are also doing the same thing. God says, I didn't send them. I didn't command them or speak to them. They're prophesying a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, even though I didn't send them, who say, ah, oh, don't worry, sword and famine aren't coming. They'll actually be consumed. The people who, to whom they, prof they prophesy, they'll be cast out into the streets. In other words, disaster's coming, and these false prophets are just locking the people into that position of being headed toward destruction. So they, these people have no knowledge of the Lord. They're marked by the deception of their own minds, uh, divination, they seem to be dabbling in that kind of pagan ritualistic omens and, and signs and um, the kind of thing that God says to stay away from. Um, it's worthless divination. Um, and they are not sent by the Lord. They see lying visions. They see lying visions and they convince people that what they see is legit. But notice, it's lying, it's deceitful, um, and they're coming against the word of God that Jeremiah is speaking. Jeremiah 29, and then we'll go to Lamentations, another writing of Jeremiah. Hear the word of the Lord. All you exiles whom I sent from Jerusalem to Babylon, Babylon, <laughs> thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel concerning Ahath, okay? <clears throat> the son of Kolea and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Okay, these are prophets. Here's what God says. I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He'll strike them down before your eyes. These prophets. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah and Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king roasted in the fire. That's their end. Because they've done an outrageous thing in Israel. What have these prophets, besides saying lies in the name of God, what's the outrageous thing? They've committed adultery with their neighbors' wives. They've spoken in my name lying words I didn't command them. I'm the one who knows, and I'm witness. Um, to Shemaiah, say this. 
Do you see how sensuality, sexual immorality, unrepentant sin marks the life of a false prophet? This is not a person who's trying to obey the Lord and walking in his commands and, and just messed up and meditates on the ways of God and just messes up here and there. This is someone who is walking a completely different direction than what God calls us to. This is what God says to Shemaiah, okay? He says, you've sent letters in your name to all the people in Jerusalem, to Zephaniah the priest, and to all the priests, saying the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada. And essentially, Shemaiah sent a letter to the priest and the people in Jerusalem saying, look, can you just put Jeremiah in prison? He keeps telling us that Babylon is going to take us and that we'll be in exile for a long time and just stay there. Can you just put him in prison? Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah. Then the word of God came to Jeremiah. <coughs> Send to all the exiles saying, this is what the Lord says about Shemaiah, okay? Who sent this letter and said lies and is encouraging people to put Jeremiah in prison. Here's what God says to Shemaiah the prophet. Shemaiah prophesied to you when I didn't send him. He made you trust in a lie. That right there, okay, is the greatest danger like the greatest danger to false prophets is you find yourself building your life on a lie. You find yourself going after a lie, spending your efforts trusting in something that is not true. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will punish Shemaiah and his descendants. He won't have anyone living among his people. Now watch, here's the key reason Shemaiah has this judgment coming against him. It's not just he said something wrong. It's not just he accidentally said something that isn't true. He's spoken rebellion against the Lord by telling people, guys, Babylon is not going to, we're not going to be in exile for long. We shouldn't build houses and get comfortable in Babylon. Jeremiah is lying. In fact, let's throw in prison. When Shemaiah says that, the Lord qualifies that as rebellion. He's encouraging rebellion against the true word of God. That right there is another mark of a false prophet. Not only do they encourage rebellion, what they say, they speak rebellious words that actually encourage sinfulness. Okay? Lamentations 2.14 gives us some more uh, of a description of a false prophet. Okay? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but they've seen for you oracles that are false and they're misleading. So the false prophets here are misleading. Instead of exposing sin, instead of calling people to repentance and actually calling out the sin in a person's life and the nation's life, right? Because Jeremiah is a national prophet primarily to Israel. Instead of being like Jeremiah, they're enabling sin. Their words, their visions, their dreams encourage disobedience. They're false and they're misleading. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 13. Also, I'm trying to give you a, a, a very clear biblical picture of what a false prophet is. Because there are some who have too, too low of a standard. And they're like, well, you know, anyone's a false prophet. The minute they say anything that isn't true at all, after a life of faithful ministry and teaching the truth, if they say one thing, they're a false prophet. Well, I think we should, the bar is actually a little higher. The standard is, well, this is what a false prophet is. It's not that low, okay? 
Ezekiel 13, 1 through 11. And then there are those who have no discernment. And they're like, stop calling people false prophets when like they fit the bill perfectly of what I've showed you. And they're like, stop calling people false prophets. Bro, they're doing everything that a false prophet does. We should mark them. That's what they are. You know, and so there's, there's middle ground. I'm trying to help you develop a balance between not being overly judgmental and overly accusatory, but also having a standard. Have a standard. Don't just believe everything you hear from someone who claims to be talking in the name of God. The word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. He says, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. They're prophesying. And say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, what's the, what, where do their prophetic words originate? In the mind of God? In the, in the truth of God? Or in their own hearts? It seems to be they're manufacturing these words and prophecies. Hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says. Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. They've seen nothing. God's exposing these false prophets. He's going, you guys are telling everyone, look at these visions we're seeing. Here's the word of the the Lord. You know you've seen nothing. Is this always how a false prophet's going to be, you know, characterized? Do they always see nothing? Or sometimes... Do they truly think they see something? And in, in fact, that's a lying vision. There seems to be both. There are those who see things that are deceptive and contrary to the word of God. And they're like, but I've seen it. So it's true. And then there are those like Ezekiel, the prophets Ezekiel's coming against. And he says, you've actually seen nothing. And you know it. Your own heart, your own spirit has, has developed this vision and prophetic word. You haven't seen anything. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, Israel. He goes on, they've seen false visions, lying divinations. Why? Because it's nothing. They're making it up. It's a fabrication. In other words, they're intentionally deceiving. It's not accidental. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them. And yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you've said, declares the Lord, even though I haven't spoken. Therefore, here's what God actually says. Because you've uttered falsehood, and they seem to be consciously aware of that. And because you've seen lying visions, and they know that. Therefore, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and give lying divinations. They shall not be in the counsel of my people. Okay? Eventually they'll know that he is God. Verse 10 says, Precisely because they've misled my people, do you see one of the key markers that we've consistently come across so far is that a false prophet intentionally misleads people away from God. They, they foster rebellion. They encourage sin. Their own lives are marked by sin. Unrepentant. Saying peace, there is no peace. They're smearing it with whitewash. So God will go on and speak judgment against them. But either way, the false prophets of Ezekiel's day are marked by conscious deception and falsehood. They know they're lying. They've seen nothing. They're deceiving people into thinking they've seen stuff. When in fact, they have not. Um... We'll save Deuteronomy 13. 
There's, there's a reason I didn't jump to Deuteronomy 13 or 18 first. Okay? Uh, that was intentional. For those that are like, bro, you missed the most, you missed the easiest scripture, man. God lobbed you a softball. Oh, we'll crush that out of the park when we get there. But I'm in re- there's a reason I'm developing this picture for you uh, throughout scripture so that when we get there, you have an idea of who Moses is warning against. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus actually speaks of false prophets. He doesn't speak of false teachers yet. That doesn't mean they're not in existence. He's addressing false prophets who actually, false teachers fall under that category as well. Because he's, Jesus is masterful. But we already addressed this in a previous episode where people are like, you know, in First or Second Timothy, I forget where, Peter's making it clear, or was it First or Second Peter? It wasn't Timothy, scratch Timothy. I think it was first or second Peter. Peter's intentionally saying, look, no more prophets, now we have teachers, because he addresses false teachers. Well, Jesus here is addressing false prophets. And I think a false teacher can be a kind of a false prophet. Are they declaring, are they claiming to speak on behalf of God? Yeah. Are teachers designed and sent by God to actually share truth and the word of God? Yeah. So prophets and teachers overlap, but they're not the exact same thing. False teachers false prophets. Either way, verse 15, beware of them. Be careful. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. That sounds like someone who has spent time scheming and strategizing, right? And they're not falling into a sheep suit going, how did I accidentally look like a sheep? They're, they're cloaking themselves. They're intentionally, consciously trying to paint a picture of themselves that isn't true. Because they know inside they're ravenous wolves. They're trying to devour. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Because there are those who present themselves as sheep. And all we can do is be charitable and go, you know what? We'll assume the best. Jesus goes, well, those who speak in the name of God aren't always saying the word of God. So how do you recognize a false prophet? So you can avoid what they're saying. Well, Look at their fruits. Clearly, a false prophet is marked by bad fruit. And this is not just their life, the, the, fruits of the, the lack of the fruits of the Spirit, or the, the, the way they interact with people, or the way they treat people poorly, or, or the way they uh, conduct themselves. This is not just the lifestyle. This is also, consistently in Matthew's Gospel, the fruit actually refers to the fruit of lips, their confession about Christ, that what they confess the Gospel is their confession about the God of Israel. That's very, very revealing. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer, no, no. My son doesn't go to a thorn bush and go, mm, yum. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, right? The diseased tree or the ravenous wolf presenting himself as a sheep, actually, that diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree can't bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus, just to be clear, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Do you have the discernment to recognize? And guess what? There is a godly kind of judgment. You have permission from God to actually evaluate what someone is saying and to test that and to weigh it and to discern through it. You have permission from God not to make an ultimate eternal judgment call about a person, but to look at their way of life 
and to actually go, hmm, based on the, the consistency of their lifestyle, I've concluded that they are um, either, you know, obeying God with their life or they're not. Like you can make, uh, Jesus says, uh, don't judge by appearance, um, but judge with godly judgment. And then Matthew 7, he'll say, hey, don't judge. That's condemning. That's standing above someone self-righteously and arrogantly. Don't engage in that kind of judgment. <clears throat> but you can evaluate a person's life consistently. Or the overall trajectory of their life and how they conduct themselves. And go, that's either a person I want to be around. And I want to like learn from and, and, and partner with. Or that's not a person I necessarily want to be learning from. And, and hearing about God from. Um, Matthew 24, 11, Okay. And we spend a lot of time on fruits. I have a book called Fruitful. Go get it. It's all about fruit. Matthew 24, 11, it says, Many false prophets, this is Jesus as the true prophet, prophesying about false prophets. He says, False prophets will arise and they'll lead many astray because lawlessness <clears throat> will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. So, whatever your eschatology is, Jesus is speaking of a future event whether that's AD 70 or something that has yet to come. The point is, false prophets are marked by leading people astray. They're taking people off the path of God. Well, how do you know that? Well, because the scriptures lay out the way we should live. And so when a person is encouraging you with prophetic words or visions or dreams, and they're saying, come off the path, if they're encouraging that, that's not a good sign. And lawlessness increases. They encourage sin. In other words, their false prophecies promote lawlessness, okay? You know, what's interesting is 1 Timothy 6, it says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, we have clear established doctrine. In other words, we have a very clear standard of truth and morality uh, to measure everything else against, okay? And to weigh things in the balance and to look at the standard of scripture and the character of Jesus and the gospel that we see from Genesis to Revelation, we have a standard to live by. There's doctrine set in stone that is absolutely validated by God authoritatively. So if anyone teaches against that doctrine, okay, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit, he understands nothing, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, jealousy, dissension, slandering, gossip, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Now you're going to want to hold on to that because there is this parallel. Watch. The people who oppose sound doctrine and are puffed up with conceit and arrogance and they're actually rejecting the sound doctrine of God's scriptures, those kinds of people, they're deprived of truth or at least they're encouraging and deceiving people who are deprived of the truth and they're depraved in mind or the people they're deceiving are depraved in mind. And regardless, both the one who is declaring these falsehoods and the people who are receiving it, they're both imagining godliness is a means of gain. So, false prophets lead people astray, oppose sound doctrine, reject the clear 
general revelation of God in scripture, right? And they actually see godliness as a means of gain. You're going to see this consistently in Jude, 2 Peter, with Balaam, with, um, uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Because I'm going to, I'm going to jump ahead and let you know where we're going. <clears throat> the spirit of false prophecy, the spirit of divination is usually connected to a love of money or a love of worldly temporary gain. In other words, you're starting to, this is starting to sound like the prosperity gospel. Now I'm all for prosperity, godly prosperity, eternal prosperity, prosperity that matters, prosperity of the heart and the soul, right? And the actual godliness and sanctification of a person and the unity of the church. I'm all for prosperity. And I'm even for a person getting healed and being provided for financially, right? I'm even for a person gaining influence to actually proclaim the gospel to more people, right? But you're going to see a strong connection between the spirit of divination and the spirit of prophecy as it relates to the love of money. And so that's why some people are like me. I'm okay with saying the, the prosperity gospel that, that robs people of the truth and minimizes the work of Christ and exalts man, that prosperity gospel is false teaching. It's false prophecy if you wanted to frame it up like that. And it's usually about self-profit, self-gain, love of money. You'll see this in Acts 8, Acts 16, 1 Samuel 28. You'll see this with Balaam and Jude and 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Okay, so you're really getting a flavor for a false prophet. 1 John 4 tells us, now, now, now I'm telling you all this and I'm spending so much time on this to give you a clear standard to measure what people say against and to go, okay, is this person I'm about to call the false prophet and mark them as a false prophet, do they really fit the bill of what a true false prophet is? 1 John 4 says, don't believe every spirit. That's on you, brother and sister. Like that's on you. No one else can make you be discerning. No one else can make you test every spirit instead of being gullible and receiving everything someone says in the name of God. No one can make you do that. That's your choice. Don't believe every spirit. It's actually a command in scripture. Now, spirit is not just talking about supernatural experiences. Whatever you qualify as, I had a vision or I saw writing on the wall or something happened supernatural. I started floating above my body. This is also talking about people who are speaking from a kind of spirit and claiming it's from God. How do you test the spirit someone is speaking in? <clears throat> well, you got to test whether they're from God. That's the standard. Are these people from God or is what they're saying from God? Well, many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay. By this, you know the spirit of God. Ready? Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Number one, they will not deny the humanity of Christ. Someone who's a true prophet of God will not deny the incarnation and the true humanity of Jesus. And every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus is not from God. If you go back in 1 John, you'll see that another thing that a true prophet will say, a true prophet will say, you know what, Jesus really is the Christ. 
He is the Mashiach. He is the one that is anointed and prophesied and the son of David and the true prophet of Moses. He's the one in Daniel's vision. He's the true king of Israel. He's the one who is the word of God uh, emanating from the father made flesh. He's God in the flesh. So you can usually get right to the heart of something. When someone comes to you and goes, I'm a prophet. When someone goes, I'm a godly teacher. Hear me, listen to what I'm saying. Or hey, I have a vision for you. Or if, or if you have an, an encounter with some spiritual being and they give you this in experience, the way you qualify whether what they're saying is truly from God is go right for the heart of the matter. Who do you say Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth, really is? Do you deny his humanity? Do you deny his deity? Do you deny, deny his sufficiency? Do you deny his atonement? Do you not deny his incarnation? Do you deny him being alongside the Father in eternity past? If you deny these core essential teachings about Christ and the gospel, I'm probably not going to listen to you. I don't want to learn from someone that has the foundation wrong. Because if you get the foundation wrong, then everything you build on that is going to be faulty. So everyone is speaking from an idea about Christ their visions, their dreams, their prophetic experience, their supernatural encounters, that's all gonna be filtered through what they think about Christ. There's a clear way to actually recognize a false versus a, a real prophet. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming is now in the world already. So also this, um, they are from the world. In other words, and, and we can, I'll tell you this, Josh makes, brings a good point. How do you define confessing Jesus? Is that just with words? I would say that is firstly going to be the mouth. Who, tell me who Jesus is. Someone can have a theological sound understanding of Jesus, right? And still not walk with him. You know what I mean? Like there are people who are like, let, let me tell you the facts about Christ. And you're like, oh, wow. Like you, you know what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Okay. They recognize the facts. Now comes the life. Do they live like what they said Jesus is? Does their life match up with their confession? Right? Because denying or confessing Jesus as Lord is not just with the mouth. It's with the life. It's with the heart. And I can't see to the heart of the person. All I can do is weigh and, and discern through their confession and the way they, they live. And if it's consistent with the gospel, if it's consistent with what they say, because <clears throat> we all know people who are like, they don't walk with Jesus. They have no faith. They don't believe the gospel, but they can still tell you like what the Bible says about Christ. They can still tell you, well, I believe Jesus is, and they go, wow, you nailed it. You got the checklist down. And then you watch how they live and you watch how they conduct themselves. And you're like, it looks nothing like what you told me. Now that doesn't mean they're not a believer. Potentially it does. If, if in fact they aren't. But at the end of the day, they might be just be immature believers. They might just be growing into their understanding of the gospel. But there are people who claim to believe something about Christ, and they really don't. <clears throat> so another uh, thing that John says about false prophets is they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and watch, the world listens to them. Now we, John speaking as an apostle, we're from God. So whoever really knows God listens to us. This sounds a lot like John chapter 10. The, the, shep, the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And they will 
you know, uh, recognize and follow the voice of those whom the shepherd has appointed to lead them. Those who are truly godly shepherds following Jesus. They'll recognize the voice of the shepherd as coming through those whom he's appointed to lead them. Because they're following the good shepherd. So the world doesn't listen. Uh, Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, John's making it clear. Our apostolic authoritative writings as eyewitnesses, if anyone comes against that, that's the spirit of error. That's the spirit of antichrist. Don't listen to them, right? He's not validating himself. He's proclaiming what Jesus said. Jesus makes this very clear. I'm sending you. I'm sending you out as the 12. Well, Judas, you're going to mess up. 11. So whoever knows God listens to us, John says. You heed the apostolic writings and the authoritative scripture. <clears throat> and guess what? The world at large and most often will follow the voice of those who are not from God. In other words, the world is susceptible and wants to follow false prophets. So they're not, those who are of the world and don't want Christ will not listen to the voice of Christ or the gospel or those whom he sends. Instead, for those who are really, they, they will never believe, they've locked themselves into rebellion and unbelief, they're, they'll never be convinced, they've decided into hell, I will, I'll follow the devil, you know, that's what they've decided. They will listen to the voices of those who claim to be from God, but aren't. And they will not listen to the true voices uh, of reason, those who come from God. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on about visions. So this is about a person who is saying, look at what I've seen. I've had these visions. They're puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind, fleshly, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished it together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So, those who, at least Paul is warning the Colossians to avoid, these kind of false prophets who have, go, look at these visions we had, they're puffed up, there's arrogance, right? There's a sense of sensuality attached to their life and their mind, it's fleshly, it's carnal. Um, <clears throat> they want to disqualify true believers, they encourage worshiping other spiritual beings, right? Um, and they don't hold fast to the head. Okay? That's one of the key issues with a false prophet. They're not connected to the head. They don't have a relationship with God. Therefore, everything they're hearing, experiencing, seeing, um, uh, is deception. They're not getting their truth from the one who is God. They're getting their truth, their idea of truth from their own minds in the world. Now Jude, okay? Watch. <coughs> I'm just reading the comments. You guys have fun. Um, Jude, the only chapter in Jude. Chapter 1. Uh, Jude says, the brother of Jesus, in like manner, these people, he's warning people against a kind of person, false prophets. They rely on their dreams, 
Uh, they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones, right? It's a pretty long list of garbage characteristics. Like there's, there's a, a picture of the kind of person you don't want to be. But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he didn't even presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. <clears throat> These people blaspheme all that they don't even understand. They're destroyed by all, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, just like Colossians and all the other things we've seen in Old Testament, they're marked by carnality and worldliness and fleshly living and sin, unrepentant sin. <clears throat> Woe to them. They walked in the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of, of gain to Balaam's error. Now, who's Balaam? Weirdly enough, he's going to be my ultimate example of what a false prophet is. And they've perished in Korah's rebellion. So the name Balaam comes up along with Cain and Korah. So Cain killed his brother Abel because God didn't regard his offering. Korah rebelled against the Lord and Moses' authority. And these three characters who are linked to the false prophets of Jude's day, these three characters have rebellion and disobedience in common. They reject the word of the Lord. Specifically, it's not just for no purpose. They reject the word of God for their own personal gain, money, influence, power. It's about personal gain. So their desire is not to listen to truth. They say, I'll do whatever it takes to gain and profit, even if it means living in a lie and leading people astray. They rely on their dreams. <clears throat> That's their source of truth and ultimate direction for life. They defile the flesh. I mean, look, they reject authority. Here's a clear New Testament picture of what a false prophet is, and it aligns perfectly with everything we've seen in the Old Testament. Rebellion, rejection, carnality, unrepentant sin, intentionally leading people astray, not wanting the truth, obsessed with personal gain, okay? Second Peter 2, Balaam's name is going to come up again. False prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will be false teachers among you. They'll secretly bring in destructive heresies. So there's a secrecy to what they're doing. There, there's a not wanting to be found out. There's a I'm coming in sheep's clothing, but I'm a wolf. They know what they're doing. So false prophets aren't marked by this ignorant. I didn't know what I was doing. They are intentionally, consciously trying to lead people astray. And they'll fake it till they do what they want. They bring in destructive heresies. They deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift <coughs> destruction. Many will follow their sensuality. So their lives are marked by sensuality. Again, carnal, unrepentant, sinful living. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So not, not only do their words blaspheme, their life is blasphemy. This is why I believe there's a, that false prophets are not simply prophets who made a mistake. False prophets are people who are blaspheming with their mouth and with their life. There is a difference between blaspheming and saying something wrong as a, from, from a good heart on accident. There's a big difference. <clears throat> like I, I think of Peter. 
Peter is concerned for Jesus when he says, I'm going to go to the cross and be raised three days later. Peter goes, far be it from you. It's out of concern and love. It's from a good heart. But he's saying something that is in opposition to what Jesus wants to do. So you have to ask yourself, is the person I'm listening to or, or the preacher on YouTube that I'm following, are they blaspheming with their life and with their, with their word? Now, okay, um, I won't get into it. In their greed, they'll exploit you. There's that greed again. There's this desire for gain, which isn't always monetary. It's not always, I just want more money. Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's influence. Sometimes it's, I don't know, sexual gain, material gain. And guess what? These false prophets exploit people with false words to gain. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. It's coming. If God didn't spare angels, like he'll go on to talk about how God took out different people throughout history, spiritual beings even, who rebelled. And these false prophets are likened to them. They're bold and willful. They indulge in the lust of defiling passion. <clears throat> they despise authority. So, so far, a false prophet, all the time at least, is marked by rebellion, rejection of God's word and authority, Sinful, carnal living marked with unrepentance, right? And there's this arrogance and desire to profit off people. <clears throat> Bold and willful, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, even though greater in might and power, don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Just like Jude called them, they're irrational animals. They're creatures of instinct. It's like they're instinctually just following every feeling and craving and desire, and they don't discern. They don't bring them before the Lord. Um, their blots and blemishes, they have hearts trained for greed, forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. In other words, they know the right way. They're not ignorant to it, okay? So a false prophet is not an unbeliever who isn't aware of the truth and is saying something, because I've come across unbelievers like that, where they, they say things and they're like, I don't believe in God. <clears throat> and then you say, hey, have you ever heard the gospel? And they go, I haven't, no. Okay, let me tell that to you. Well, now you're aware of it. Now you know that truth. So if you reject it, you're held accountable. These people, false prophets at least, they know the right way. They've just rejected it. So these aren't people who are like, I just want to know the truth. I'm confused. These are people who are like, oh, the right way. That won't give me more money. And they, boop, leave it, go straight. Oh, and this is where we'll jump into Balaam. They've followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Hmm. Mm-mm-mm. But was rebuked for his own transgression. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Balaam isn't clearly, explicitly called a false prophet, but he's lumped in the category. The surrounding context makes him out to be a false prophet because he's actually lumped into that category to warn against, you know, <clears throat> Peter's warning against false prophets. So what you're going to see about Balaam is he doesn't utter lies and deception. Instead, he knew the truth and he used that knowledge, rejected it, rebelled against it. And he used that knowledge to actually lead the people of Israel astray in deception. He schemed with the king of Moab. He spoke the truth, even received that truth from God. 
but he wielded that truth wrongly and counseled uh, Balak, the, the king of Moab, he counseled him, hey, let's entice Israel to sin. So Balaam heard the truth, he knew it, he even like believed in that awareness kind of sense, but he didn't actually commit and obey it. He rebelled. And so false prophets aren't, again, aren't people operating out of ignorance. I just need to know the truth. They're people who have a knowledge of the truth and choose to reject it anyway because they love gain and they'll do wrong to get that gain. And Balaam is said to have committed a transgression and he's rebuked by a speechless donkey and he had madness that needed to be restrained. Thank you, Joshua. You're right, every dollar does count. Uh, everything God is doing here. So I want you to see Balaam is like the ultimate example after he's talked about the spiritual beings at the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah and um, the people at the flood. Now he goes, these people are like Balaam. They love profiting off of sin. They'll, tra they'll transgress the word of God. They'll leave the right way to go astray and get what they want. Now, here's my, what I found in scripture to be the ultimate example of a false prophet. His name is Balaam. Balaam is someone who is called a diviner, a seer. Um, he actually hears God. Uh, but specifically, diviners, seers like Balaam, <clears throat> he practices divination. Uh, he's a diviner uh, who would look for omens and signs through pagan kind of ritualistic methods. And God would actually, I'm not saying this is a pattern to follow, but in this period of human history, God is speaking to Balaam, who is a diviner, <clears throat> and doing these kind of omens and signs and looking for different, you know, things. God is actually working through that, okay? That's not a pattern. That's not normative. That's not a knock on God's character or uh, goodness. This is Balaam, is a, a diviner, and the king of Moab, his name's Balak. I'm not going to say his name just for sake of confusion. The king of Moab goes out, sees the nation of Israel, camped around. He goes, oh my gosh, these people are going to destroy me. I heard what they did to Egypt. He sends for Balaam. Balaam doesn't come the first time because Balaam was told by God, don't curse this people. I've blessed them, okay? The king sends another group of people to go, Balaam, come curse these people for me, please. I, I don't want to be overtaken by them, right? And so God uh, tells Balaam again, hey, look, this is what he says in Deuteronomy 23. Thank you, Stephen. Um, he says... Uh, it's Numbers, sorry. Numbers 25. Um, I got all my scriptures mixed up. What's it? No, I forget where Balaam is. Balaam, where are you? Uh, Numbers 22. Okay. So the second time Balaam is summoned by the king of Moab, the Lord says, because Balaam checks again, like, God, oh, did you really say I, gotta cur I can't curse his people? And he goes, well, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. Only do what I tell you. Now, Balaam's going to rise in the morning, saddle his donkey, and go with the princes of Moab. And God's going to stop him uh, with a donkey, just like 2 Peter said. Remember 2 Peter said, a speechless donkey restrained his madness. He was rebuked for his transgression. Well, where did Balaam transgress? Well, 
God told him, I have not cursed this people. I've blessed them. Even though Balaam knew that, he still went, ah, the king sent more people though, Lord. Can I like, is there a chance we can get around this? What do you have to say? Let me, let me see what you really want. And God goes, well, if they've come to get you, there's like conditions attached to this word. But Peter looking back goes, that was a transgression for Balaam to do that. Because the donkey's restraining his madness and rebuking him for that sin, which only up to that point we know that he went with the people. Now, Numbers twenty or Deuteronomy twenty-three, <clears throat> it says this: uh, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they didn't meet you with bread and with water when you came out of Egypt. They hired Balaam, the son of Beor of Mesopotamia to curse you. So that's his, that's his, uh, that's his typical job description. Balaam's the guy you call if you want to curse someone and the Lord, your God wouldn't listen to Balaam. Interesting. Instead, the Lord turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord loves you. So Balaam was trying to get God to curse the people of Israel. The Lord would not listen. Balaam wanted to curse the people because the king of Moab was going to reward him greatly. It seems like Balaam even tried to sway God to do so. In the end, the donkey speaks, rebukes him, and Balaam ultimately is going to see different visions, I think about four or five, and he's going to tell the king, look, God has blessed this people, but, but, there might be a way around it. And Balaam's actually going to counsel the king of Moab to do something that would cause Israel to bring a curse upon themselves. So essentially Balaam goes, God won't curse them, but if they reject him and do what he said not to do, then God will release a curse as a consequence. That's just a part of their, their sinful consequence. Joshua 13, 22, Balaam, the son of Beor, the one who practiced divination, was killed with the sword by the people of Israel. So when, when Israel goes in and actually destroys um, the people of the, the men of Moab specifically, Balaam's among them, and he's called one who practices divination. Now he dies because he did some wrong stuff, okay? And Numbers 25 is the account of what actually happened. Israel commits a big sin against the Lord, but that sin was actually incited by Balaam, the, the, the diviner. Israel's living in Shittim. Careful how you say that. The people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. People ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel yoked himself to Baal. So beyond sexual immorality, do you know what this is? This is idolatry. This is idolatry. Um, so, essentially, the anger of the Lord is released as a consequence, fire breaks out. Uh, Phineas, the son of Aaron, and ends it by spearing a person who's committing the sin with, uh, in other words, Phineas brings an end to it, and God actually blesses Phineas for that. So Numbers 25 is the account of Israel committing the sin, okay? The interesting thing about Balaam is like Triple J said in here, Balaam didn't hear a false word. He didn't have a false prophecy. He knew the truth, he heard the truth, he interpreted it correctly, he heard correctly from God. 
what makes him a false prophet in Jude and Peter's mind and everyone else's mind who's going to write about him is the fact that he rebelled and incited rebellion in Israel. So um, Joshua twenty-two sixteen will actually account for this. Thus says the whole congregation, what is this breach of faith you've committed against the God of Israel? Um, haven't we had enough of the sin at Peor, which is where Baal's from, uh, Balaam, from which even we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? So he's comparing what they're doing now to what they used to do. Apparently there was a great rebellious act, a great rebellion right here. Um, and that was the sin of engaging in sexual morality with the Moabites and then being led to idolatry through that, okay? Um, and this actually required a cleansing. Psalm chapter 106, we'll talk about this. Um, it, recount, it recounts the great sin Israel committed where Phineas had to stand up to stop that plague. Same event. Israel yoked themselves to Baal. So this is not just sexual morality and it's, it's idolatry. It's coming under the yoke of Baal. They're eating sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoke God to anger and that's why the plague broke out that Phineas had to stand up and stop. Hosea chapter 9 <clears throat> it talks about how God brought Israel out of Egypt, but they came to Baal Peor, consecrated themselves to this thing of shame, and became detestable. Why? Because they gave themselves up to Baal. It started with the women, and then it was eating food, and then it was coming under the yoke. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10.8, it says, We must not in indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. So Paul even references that as a very big example of don't commit sexual immorality like the people of Israel because it has such a strong connection to idolatry, especially because it was a sin against the Lord. Now, Numbers 31, back to Old Testament, okay? Uh, it says, here's the account that we get, watch. Behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. <clears throat> so guess what? Balaam advised the king of Moab, hey, entice Israel with your women. Then you can lead them into witchcraft, divination, idolatry, sexual morality, and then the consequence for that is that they'll be cursed. God will bring a curse upon them. Doesn't this sound like Genesis 3? The serpent knows the consequence for rebellion, so he incites it, and he allows Adam and Eve to bring the curse upon themselves. That was the natural consequence for rebellion. Same thing happening here, okay? So the Lord uh, commands Moses to tell Israel to war against Midian and kill every male because of... Um, this sin. Revelation 2.14, um, Jesus talking to the church in Pergamum. He says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. What did Balaam do? Well, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual morality. In other words, Balaam taught Balak how to lead Israel into sin. He devised a scheme. He, there was strategy to getting the people of Israel to bring a curse on themselves. 
Okay, and then Jude talks about the way of Balaam. Second Peter talks about Balaam being the ultimate example. Okay, so Second Peter 2 is where Balaam is really given some airtime. <clears throat> these people, these false prophets that Peter's warning against, they followed the way of Balaam. What did Balaam do? Well, he loved gain from wrongdoing. He transgressed the command of God. He was rebuked by a donkey. Right, who restrained his madness. He counseled Baal, uh, the king of Moab to go and lead Israel into idolatry, sexual immorality, and let them bring a curse upon themselves. So Balaam committed transgression. Okay, He received a clear word from God. He rebelled because he loved gain. Because the king of Moab goes, look, Balaam, I can give you so much. Influence, power, money. Like you can have, I'll give you so much stuff, so much money. Balaam was so enticed. In other words, the reason I bring Balaam into the picture, not only does Peter do it, not only does Jude do it, right? Not only do we see the Psalms and, and, and Revelation referencing that event, it's like a big event in Israel's history. Like it's up there with, with the actual crossing through the Red Sea. And it's to their shame. Like this is actually not a good thing. It's a very big event in the, in the history of the nation. And it's referenced a lot for a reason. Balaam is um, a big, a clear example of a false prophet. Now again, Balaam heard the correct things. He interpreted it correctly. He rejected and rebelled and he incited sin, just like we see happening in the Old Testament with any false prophets. Okay, so what seems to qualify someone as a false prophet is not an accidental mistake from, made from a good heart. It's willful rebellion, a heart of disobedience, even though they have a knowledge of his word and maybe they even heard his voice clearly like Balaam. In other words, at least, at least, okay, one of the key marks of a false prophet is willful rebellion against the word of the Lord. Not a lack of understanding, not a lack of clarity, not a lack of accurate interpretation, it's willful rebellion, rejection, and disobedience against that. So guess what? Balaam got it right. He led people astray intentionally, rebelling against the known word of God that he received in a vision. Okay. And another example of a false prophet is going to be in Acts 13. <clears throat> when Paul arrives at Salamis, they proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Mark. Okay, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician. He's called a Jewish false prophet. So he's a Jewish person. He's of the nation of Israel. And he's a bum -ba -da -ba, magician. A lot of false prophets will engage and dabble in that kind of sorcery, magic, divination kind of thing. Looking for omens, witch of Endor kind of stuff. Um... And he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul, and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, he's actually more of a magician than a false prophet, and that's what he's referred to. He's referred as, um, but he's still a false prophet. Maybe he's a false prophet because of the fact that he dabbles in, in that magic. But he opposed them. Who did he oppose? 
Well, the ones who are bringing the true word of God. What was he doing? Seeking to turn the broken soul away from the faith. Boom. Right there. Is, again, the key mark and, and, and characteristic of a false prophet. But Saul ends up blinding him. My guy is humbled. The, the uh, who is it? The king believes. Um, the broken soul believes. Okay? And he actually... The magician, the false prophet, trying to stand in opposition to the word of God actually becomes a reason. <laughs> He's used as a reason that the guy ends up believing. So again, it's this life consistently, long term, marked by disobedience, rebellion, rejection of God's word, standing in opposition, trying to lead people astray. There's your false prophet. Now, the question becomes, what do we do with false prophets? Well, everyone wants to run to Deuteronomy 18. Okay. Now, Deuteronomy 18, the Lord, now that you have a picture of false prophets, like every time you see a false prophet, you see those characteristics. This prideful, arrogant rejection of God's word, re rebellion against God, uh, a, a carnality, sinful living, unrepentant sin, a desire to lead people astray in order to profit, um, and refusing of God. Now that you have a picture of a false prophet, you have an idea of who Moses is warning against. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who is he talking about? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. Someone said, what makes a false prophet different from an unbeliever then? I would say, like, this is just me shooting from the hip. I would say nothing except that a false prophet claims to be speaking in the name of God. They're just making a claim that your typical unbeliever won't. Everyone's speaking from a source and believing something. But a false prophet usually is marked by, I'm saying this is from God, the God that you serve. Eh, I don't know. So Moses says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. And I, I would say a false prophet intentionally leads people astray. Whereas I know a lot of unbelievers who they're not trying to lead people astray. They truly believe what they have is the truth. And they just need to be convinced that it's not by seeing the actual truth. Right? So they're, they're unknowingly leading people astray. False prophets, it's intentional. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. Him you shall listen to. Or to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, the people of Israel told, Mo told Moses, let's not hear the voice of God anymore or see this great fire. We're terrified. We don't want to die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they've spoken. So they go, Moses, you talk to us, you hear from God, we'll hear from you. And God goes, all right, Moses, do it. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Now remember, this is God speaking, telling Moses, I'm gonna raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses. Verse 15, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. That's gonna be Jesus. The greater Moses, better than Moses, the best prophet, the clearest word from God, okay? The one who hears 
God clearest as being the eternal word in the flesh. I'll raise up for you a prophet like me from among their brothers. That's going to be Christ. The Mashiach, Jesus. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. Whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. This is Jesus' whole ministry, man. He's going, you're not listening to me because you're not listening to the Father. Otherwise, you listen to me. Or you rejecting me is rejecting the Father. So watch the transition. Remember, the context is that Moses is letting them know a prophet like me, a covenant mediating prophet who hears directly a line of communication face to face with the Father, that prophet who's going to be better than me, he's coming. And you better listen to him or God will hold you accountable. On the heels of that, we have verse 20. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I've not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now, just so you know, um, it doesn't explicitly say that the people of Israel are the one putting that prophet to death. It just states that the prophet will die. Now, you might read it as a command. That prophet should die. Take care of it. That's fine. I read it as, at least so far, that at least the prophet will die. At the hands of God, naturally, he'll take care of it. Or at the hands of the people of Israel, are they supposed to take care of it? It doesn't say right here. If you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? In other words, how do we know who, someone who claims to be the prophet Moses declared is coming and someone is, I'm the med covenant mediating prophet like Moses, listen to me. How do we know he's actually the one or he's speaking from you versus not? Well, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, <clears throat> that's a word the Lord has not spoken. Okay, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Don't be afraid of him. Now, it doesn't say stone him. You can reference me to Deuteronomy 13 and we'll go there. Okay, but at least here, it doesn't say stone him, doesn't say kill him. It just says don't be afraid of him. Uh, the kind of being afraid here is, is more like a, a stand in amazement, stand in wonder, heed his words, follow what he's saying, have a kind of uh, fear about what he's declaring. You don't have to, okay, if the word doesn't come to pass. Now, I will say this, and this is helpful in, in making sense of what's happening. I've already established that there's no clear command, kill them. It just says they shall die. Like God will take care of that. We see God do that, especially in Jeremiah's day. When a prophet comes and says, the Lord said, and God didn't say, God handles him, takes care of him, takes him out. Um, the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name. Now that's the key. This comes on the heels of the covenant mediating prophet who will be better than Moses and like Moses. Okay. Um, the prophet here, um, contextually, is presuming. Okay. They're speaking presumptuously. Uh, the word for presume actually means to act proudly or rebelliously. It's the same idea in 1 Samuel 15, 23, when Saul is told to kill the king of the, the uh, Amalekites, uh, the, one of those nations, and he doesn't. 
He rejected the word of God. 1 Samuel 15, 23, Samuel tells Saul, bro, you missed it. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. Presumption is just as bad as idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you from being king. In other words, Saul's presumption is to reject the word of God and disobey what he knew to do. So the idea of presuming here is a rebellious coming against the truth of God uh, in a prideful, arrogant kind of way. Every other occurrence of this word for, for presuming right here um, that I found uh, has a connection to pride or arrogance. Okay, It's to defiantly rebel against the word of the Lord. So the prophet here who presumes to speak a word, it makes the most sense that he's um, claiming to be the prophet that you know Moses spoke of. And if not, if you're going, well, that's too far. Okay, I'll give you that. He's at least pridefully, uh, rebelliously speaking a word in the name of God that he knows is not true. Just like we've seen every other false prophet throughout scripture. It's a conscious awareness. I'm telling a lie. I'm not telling the truth. I've rejected the truth. I'm rebelling against the revealed word of God. And I'm going to say something else and attach God's name to it. That's what's happening here. Okay, it's at least the presumption, the speaking is defiant. It's It's not just he happened to say something God didn't say. He knows he's speaking against what God has said. And, okay, this may include claiming falsely that they are the prophet Moses prophesied of, who mediates a new covenant and speaks the true words of God and has face-to-face, one-on-one, direct line of communication with the Father. That's Jesus, and anyone who comes claiming to be him, right, um, don't worry about. Don't fear them. Don't be afraid. You know, this sounds a lot like what Jesus says. Um, He says, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ. It's Matthew 24. Or there he is. Don't believe it. (laughs) False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders in order to lead astray. Again, if even possible, the elect. Jesus lets us know false prophets will arise. False Christs will arise. Those who claim to be the Mashiach. Those who claim to be the one who mediates the covenant between man and God. He will, there will be fake ones that arise, and they'll even do great signs and wonders. This sounds like uh, Elimus the magician, or Simon the sorcerer, or fill in the blank. Um, not that they were claiming to be the Christs, but <clears throat> uh, Elimus was a false prophet. And the point of this is, look, if you're saying God tells us to kill the false prophet, um... I'll tell you, let's pull that from a different text because this just states what's going to happen to that prophet, not who's the one doing it, okay? Um, So let's go to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13. Because you might go, well, these people are false prophets because they said something that won't come true. Well, hold on. Jesus, by his own admission, he said, false prophets will arise and do great signs and wonders. Like, they're supernatural counterfeits. 
they're still happening, but they're counterfeits of what God does. They're from the power of the, of the kingdom of darkness. They originate in the enemy's power. And we'll see this because we'll talk about, are there counterfeit visions, prophecies, supernatural insight? The answer is yes. <clears throat> so what makes someone a false prophet is not that they get it wrong. It's not that they speak something that, isn't, that doesn't come to pass. There are false prophets who speak things that do come to pass in Deuteronomy 13. I do need honey and lemon. Like I've had this lingering kind of cough thing going on for like three weeks. It needs to stop. This is what Deuteronomy 13 says. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, in other words, they accurately, uh, with their dreams or with their prophecy, they do a sign, they do a wonder, which seems to be more like prophetic in nature. They declare something that happens. Uh, their prediction actually comes to pass. Because um, right here, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass. So the sign or the wonder is not like a, hey, look at this water, I'll turn it into lava. This is, I'm telling you it's going to happen. This is the sign or a wonder, and it does come to pass. And if he says, let's go after other gods, which you've not known, and let's serve them, don't listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. The Lord is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Walk after the Lord your God, fear him, keep his commandments, obey his voice. You shall serve him, hold fast to him. That prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Now that sounds more like, hey, nation of Israel, this kind of prophet who is inciting rebellion and encouraging idolatry and encouraging sin and even using false wonders and signs that come to pass to encourage that. Yeah, that kind of a false prophet needs to be put to death. Why? He's taught rebellion against the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Purge the evil from your midst. So what makes a false prophet false is not the fact they got something wrong. Here we have a false prophet getting something right, like Balaam. Heard the voice of God accurately, but he taught rebellion. He incited idolatry. He encouraged sexual morality. He like encouraged sin. He said, let's leave God. And there are false prophets, just like Jesus says, there'll be false Christs and false prophets that do signs and wonders to encourage leaving the God of Israel. That's what makes them a false prophet. And I think that, <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 18, the prophet who presumes that presumption might have an underlying let's lead people astray too because of the fact that they're rejecting the word of God already. And so we can't say, hey, a false prophet is someone who gets it wrong. That might play into our evaluation. That might be a factor. How often do they get a word wrong? But again, it's the inciting rebellion. It's the presumption. It's the rejecting of God's word. It's the not wanting truth. It's the not standing in the counsel of God. It's the encouraging sin. It's encouraging idolatry and encouraging sexual morality. It's a life of sin on the part of the prophet. All of that comes together to shape the picture and the mosaic that we call a false prophet. Okay? So, there are false prophets who make accurate predictions. What we have to ask is, is the opposite true? Are there true prophets who get it wrong sometimes and make mistakes? 
In other words, is a true prophet infallible? Well, if a false prophet can get it right, maybe a true prophet is not infallible like we've been taught. I'm just going to give you some things to think about. First, let's establish this. Are there counterfeit visions, prophecies, and supernatural insight? Well, we already looked at Matthew 24. Um, we looked at Deuteronomy 13. That should already give you a resounding, yes, there is. Acts 8 talks about Simon. He previously practiced magic, right? Now, we also talked about the false prophet, uh, Bar-Jesus in Acts 13. He was a magician. Like, these aren't... This isn't like your, like your six-year-old magician that's like, I can make you think I knew your card. This is like a legitimate sign. Simon practiced magic. Not all magic is fake. Not all supernatural experiences are illegitimate. They could be bad. Just because they happened and they're real doesn't mean they're good. So we have Simon who practiced magic in Samaria. This right here is telling. He said he was someone great. What's that? Self-exaltation, self-focus, self-profit, self-gain. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. Okay. Now also what I'm about to show you is that the spirit of divination, false prophecy is connected to the love of money and profit, self-gain. They all paid attention to him going, oh, he's awesome. Whoa, this man has the power of God. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believe Philip, the evangelist who comes and shares the gospel, they're believing, he's doing signs and miracles. <clears throat> and then he goes, you know what? I want to get baptized. I want to get baptized. He, so he has a kind of belief. Peter and John come down, validate the Samaritans. The spirit of God falls on them. When Peter and John lay their hands on the Samaritans, Simon the magician or sorcerer looks at that and goes, huh, he saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money. He said, give me this power too. What's he trying to buy? He's trying to buy the power to relay the spirit of God to someone, to give the spirit to someone, so that when I lay my hands, uh, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands can receive the spirit. Peter said, said, may your silver perish with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And he goes, you have no part in this. Now, there's a real magician who amazed people with what he was doing. And a love of money wants to profit off the spirit. Acts 16, we have a slave girl who's abused by her masters. She has a spirit of divination, right? And she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Like, this is like legitimately happening. In fact... We know that this is a legitimate spirit that is saying accurate things because she follows Paul around saying, these are servants of the Most High proclaiming salvation. I've always wondered why. She seems to be validating herself and going, well, if I jump on the train of what they're doing and they're, they're already proving that their gospel is true and their signs and wonders validate that, then if I jump on the tail end of that, that can actually validate what I'm doing. So she's crying out. That, that's what I believe is happening here for the sake of gain. So her divination eventually 
Paul gets annoyed, casts the spirit out, and her owners get mad because their hope of gain is gone. So, yes, there are counterfeit gifts, counterfeit divin divination, magic, predictions, fortune-telling. Um, here we have the witch of, at Endor. Saul no longer heard from God. And so he goes, you know what? I need to go to Endor because God ain't speaking through the prophets, dreams by Urim and Thurim. I, I, I need to go f inquire of a medium. So she's, she's a medium, a witch. Uh, Saul disguised himself, right? comes to her, doesn't let her know that's him because they put all the witches and the mediums out. Then the woman said, who do you want me to bring up for you? This seems to be conjuring up a spirit. And he said, well, bring up Samuel for me. Bring up Samuel. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said, well, you deceived me. You're Saul. You jerk. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? I keep going. Don't kill the, the vibe. The woman said, I see a God coming up out of the earth. I, like, I think the word here is Elohim. Like not God, the true and living God, but a spiritual being. Um, he said to her, what is his appearance? She said, an old man. Is coming up. He's wrapped in a robe. Saul knew it was Samuel. He bows his face to the ground. And guess what? Saul and Samuel have an interaction here. They have a legitimate interaction. Samuel has information about Saul and, and what he told Saul. I've heard some say, well, this is a fake spirit presenting himself as Samuel. That's not what the text says. It actually says Samuel came up. What do you do with that? I don't know. I really don't know. But the point is, yeah, she conjured up uh, Samuel by her divination, by her witchy stuff. It really worked. Um, did God allow that? Uh, is this, like a, is this a, like a mirage? What's happening here? I don't know. But the Sam, uh, Samuel seems to have information that only Samuel would know about Saul. Uh, but either way, yes. Uh, and then, uh, you know, apparently, you would guess that she's charging for this. So, yes, there are counterfeit versions of what God wants to do. That's why they're fake prophets. That's why fake prophecies, fake dreams, fake visions. Um, so like I said, don't just go, well, this is really happening, therefore it must be good. <clears throat> just because a supernatural thing happens doesn't mean it's good or from God. That's why First John says, test the spirits. Not just the spirit from which someone is speaking, but what you're even experiencing. The vision or dream that you're experiencing. That's why when I had my vision in, in, when I was laying in bed, I didn't just go, you know what, this is from God. I went, Lord, if this is from you, can you validate this somehow and clarify? And I didn't whisper that out loud so demons could hear. You know, I really talked to the Lord in my head. And there was that kind of validation and then confirmation from people and um, just all this stuff, confirmation. And, and there, there's a way to look for signs in a way that's overly analytical and just confirmation bias, of course. And there's a way to make signs out of nothing. I get that. But um, it's pretty clear for me, man. You just learn how to recognize and discern through that. Not, not that I get it right all the time. The question then becomes, why does God allow false prophets? Right? Isn't that a good question? Well, Deuteronomy 13.3 tells us, well, um, the Lord your God is testing you as a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, saying, let's go after other gods. The Lord uses that as a test to test their faithfulness and faith and commitment and loyalty to him. Not that he doesn't know but with the test comes an opportunity to be rewarded and, and actually like move up or progress or be validated in some capacity. 
And so the Lord is testing you to know whether you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. Okay? Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 talks about how God sends a strong delusion. Kind of like the, uh, when Micaiah sees a prophecy, he sees a vision. Um, when Micaiah sees um, God saying, hey, who's going to go in and, and make Ahab and his uh, army fall apart, essentially, and a lying spirit comes forth. And God goes, what are you going to do? Well, I'll, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets. Okay, go. And Micaiah saw that. <clears throat> this is God sending a strong delusion. This is not God deceiving. This is God giving people what they already have and want and only desire. This is God almost confirming, uh, not even confirming, like it's the natural consequence of rejecting truth and wanting deception. When you, uh, There seems to be a biblical category for when a person rejects the truth enough and they reach that point of no return where they will never believe and they just want falsehood, they want deception, they want confirmation bias, they're not open to being wrong. That person, it seems like there's a, there's a, almost like the idea of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh after he hardened his heart enough. God does that by sending a strong delusion on people so that they may believe what is false because that's all they want. So he like confirms that and locks them in that. Kind of like how the nation of Israel rejecting God in Jeremiah's or Ezekiel's time, they have a bunch of false prophets confirming their bias, telling them what they want to hear. Like Paul warns Timothy, there will be people in the end who just, their ears are tickling, they just want to hear what they want to hear. You know, they're, they're not going to be open to the truth, okay? They just want to hear what confirms their way of life and will support their pre-suppositions. Okay, God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so sometimes God gives false prophets as a judgment for their continual rebellion, their continual rejection of the truth, their continual disobedience, right? And after enough of that, guess what? A person becomes vulnerable and susceptible to falsehood. Because not only is it all they want, it's all they're open to and it's all they know. Because they've rejected the truth. And so a person who's truly following the leading of Jesus won't be vulnerable, but will test and be discerning and know truth and have a standard to measure things against. Whereas the people who receive a strong delusion or the people who are sent false prophets, to, it also plays a dividing role, right? False prophets and these strong delusions kind of bring a, a, a division, between who belongs to God and who doesn't, on at least a smaller level. So don't shut your ears to the truth and be positioned or vulnerable for deception. Um, God actually tells Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30, he says, uh, write this before them on a tablet and scribe it on a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. In other words, what God is writing down now will come to pass and it will be confirmed and validate Isaiah as a prophet and confirm the word of the Lord. He says, they are rebellious people. This is the nation of Israel. They're lying children. Now watch. They are children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They don't want it. They say to the seers, don't see. They say to the prophets, don't prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things. 
prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us not hear about the Holy One of Israel. Really? Is that not Israel when Jesus comes? They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. They've hardened their own hearts. They've shut their eyes. They don't want to. They're not open to it. They're in a temporary season of hardened hearts. Well, in Isaiah's day, these people are the same. They're unwilling to hear. Even if the truth comes, they don't want to. When a prophet comes and goes, you know what? This is what the Lord says. They go, stop talking about the Lord. Tell us what we want to hear. They've already decided what they want to hear. <laughs> They're not open to being wrong or being corrected or knowing the truth. They prophesy illusions. Tickle our ears. Tell us to leave the path of truth and abandon God. We don't want him. <sighs> Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and you trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, this, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall. And he'll go on to use poetic imagery of what their judgment will be like. So yes, God does allow false prophets as judgment against those who don't want truth, um, but also as a test um, so that those who do love the truth can stand strong and prove their love and faith. <clears throat> so um, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10 through 14 the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep, closed your eyes, the prophets, covered your heads, the seers, and the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. The vision of what? The vision of what Isaiah is bringing. When, when men give it to whom one can read, he's going to compare it to an image. He goes, well, this is like someone giving a book to another person that can read. And, and they say, read this. And he goes, I can't. It's sealed up. And then they give the book to someone who cannot read. And they go, read this. You know, I can't read. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, the fear of me is a commandment taught by man. Behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. Wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God, at certain seasons in certain periods of human history, with certain people groups, it seems to be that there are times when God withholds true prophetic vision, true prophetic words, true prophetic dreams uh, for a season. And it's judgment against the people. He says, I've closed the eyes of the prophets. I've covered the heads of the seers, implying they won't see, they won't hear. Because these prophets and seers and the people are positioned. They've positioned themselves to not be open to the truth. So, prophetic vision is shut up. And Isaiah is sent to declare the word of the Lord. Um, but then you have between Malachi and, and Matthew's gospel, a season of silence. That doesn't mean there's no prophets at all. That means there's no prophets like the, the Isaiah, Samuel. Moses to declare on a national level. Uh, I don't believe that because it's not recorded, therefore God wasn't speaking prophetically to anyone. Actually, when we get to the time of Jesus, we have Simeon, we have Anna the prophetess, we have quite a few people who are hearing. It's always been this, okay? This is, this is how it's been from the very beginning to the very end. Those who are open to the truth and are receptive and have ears to hear, okay? They will be open 
and, and position to hear the voice of the Lord and to walk in the truth. Those who are not, they will not. It is that simple. John 10, 5 actually tells us that the sheep who belong to God, watch this, they won't listen to the voice of strangers. Those who try and creep into the sheepfold another way. Those who truly belong to God won't listen to or follow or heed the voice of strangers because they're not familiar. So false prophets can actually be a way God uh, exposes the goats from the sheep. Now, of course, that ultimate unveiling and exposing won't happen till the day of judgment. But um, that seems to be a, a way God uses the, the false prophets. He allows them to almost confirm. A, a good way of explaining it is Jeremiah uh, talks about the, this yoke being on the nation of Israel. Okay, <clears throat> He says, you're going to come under the yoke of the king of Babylon. Another competing prophet comes to Jeremiah and goes, no, takes the yoke, shatters it, and goes, God's going to break the yoke. And Jeremiah goes, your false prophecy just made those wooden yokes into iron. You just solidified the people in their rebellion, in their sin, in their unbelief and rejection. That's what false prophets do. They're almost that final act of God, you might say. <laughs> Upon a person who's like, I'll never believe, I love lies and falsehood. There's this, it's like this final act of God to confirm and lock them in that because they've pre-decided to never come out of it. And God goes, okay, I'll give you over. False prophets play a role in that process. This is something I wanted to hit on. We've already established, okay, this is a question that I'm, I'm confident there's at least one scripture that says yes. That doesn't mean and I'm going to play by my own rules, that doesn't mean an isolated occurrence becomes a frequent pattern or a, a, a pattern to, to, to imitate, okay? But we've already established prophets can make wrong conclusions about a word or a vision they receive. Uh, they let their own personal thoughts or judgments cloud their, uh, the way they discern or hear a word from God. You know, we've talked about uh, Acts 21.4, the prophets hear, Paul, there's judgment, there's, there's persecution waiting, and they go, don't go to Jerusalem. Right word, wrong conclusion, right? Uh, we talked about Agabus and the prophets. We talked about 1 Samuel 16. Uh, we've already talked about this in past episodes. Um, that Samuel is sent to go and anoint the, the king of Israel, going to be David. He just knows it's the son of Jesse. The last time he anointed a king, it was Saul, so he assumes it's going to be that way. And he looks at Eliab, Jesse's first son, Eliab, and he goes, that's the king in his own heart and mind. He doesn't say it, thus saith the Lord, but he's thinking it. In other words, he makes a wrong conclusion, but he has the right prophetic word from God to go and find a son of Jesse. Um, Job 33, 14 tells us that, hey, um, uh, man doesn't always perceive the way God is speaking. Genesis 40, verse 8 says the interpretation of a dream, vision, word comes from God. Interpretations belong to God. So we've already established that yes, prophets can make wrong conclusions about a right word. Um, a prophet can see or hear the right thing and come to a wrong conclusion, conclude the wrong thing. God speaks perfectly. I'm saying the recipient is the imperfect, fallible vessel. We can make mistakes. God speaks infallibly and perfectly. We as the receivers have a lot to work through. So God knows that when he chooses to speak through us um, or to us or prophets, okay? 
Um, so we already established that yes, prophets can still make a wrong application or interpretation or uh, conclude the wrong thing about something. Um, a prophet doesn't always know when God is speaking. Like Job, man doesn't always perceive when God is speaking. First Samuel 3, Samuel didn't recognize the voice of God. Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah heard, is told that his cousin Shalom will come and tell him to buy his field. Three verses later, uh, he, Shalom comes and he goes, Jeremiah, buy my field. And then the text actually says in verse 9 or 8, Jerem then Jeremiah knew it was the word of the Lord. So he didn't even know until that confirmation came. He was probably wrestling through it. Uh, Saul on the road to Damascus didn't know it was the Lord speaking until he clarified. He goes, who are you, Lord? He recognizes authority, but he doesn't know who's speaking. And he goes, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Uh, Moses wasn't initially sure who he was interacting with at the burning bush. So God clarifies, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of you know Jacob. In Acts 15, 19, 22, and 28, um, I'll show you this real quick. <clears throat> the apostles and prophets do what seems right um, to them, just to be clear, like it actually says to them. Acts, sorry. Um, so they're con trying to figure out what to do with uh, Gentiles and the Torah. Uh, I forget who's speaking right here. Uh, I think it's Peter. All the assembly as they're related to Simeon. Has, and, and with all these words, I agree. Therefore, my judgment, I think it's Peter. Peter goes, my judgment is that we should not trouble the Gentiles. Okay, And he tells them what they think he thinks they should do. Then verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders to choose men to send a letter. Okay, And then verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than this. So here's the letter Peter and the apostles send with Paul and Barnabas. It says, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There's this, there's this weighing, there's this deciding, it seemed good to the Spirit, it seemed good to us, so they conclude it's the right thing to do. Um, even Gideon asked for clarification on the word of the Lord with the fleece. So I mean, there's just all these different examples of yes or, or no. A prophet does not always know it's God speaking when he is. When God speaks, because there's that assumption that says, well, when God speaks, you'll know it. Really? <laughs> so the question becomes, you know, can prophets get it wrong? A prophet can hear or see the right thing and conclude the wrong thing. A prophet doesn't always know if and when God is speaking. Like when God speaks, it's not always abundantly clear to the recipient. So can a prophet get it wrong? Are prophets infallible? Uh, and I'm going to play by my own rules and say that an isolated occurrence doesn't give us a normative practice. What is described is not prescribed. Um, so let me take you to 1 Chronicles 28. We'll be done in like 10 minutes, hopefully. So stick around. First Chronicles 28, David assembles at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel by tribes, the divisions that serve the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the steward, all the people, okay? The king rose to his feet, King David, and he says, hear me, hear me, hear me. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And for the footstool of our God. 
and I made preparations for building. Okay? But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. You're a man of war and you've shed blood. So, yet the Lord God of Israel chose me and my sons and he said, Solomon will build my house. Okay, so this is David looking back in hindsight at an event we're about to look at in 2 Samuel 7. And he goes, I had it in my heart to do what? To build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant. And I made preparations for building. But God said, you can't. You've shed too much blood. Sam, uh, Solomon will do that. Now, here's the actual event. That was him accounting for it. And remembering, here's 2 Samuel 7. When the king lived in his house and the Lord gave him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Remember, he wants the Ark of the Covenant to rest in a place. He wants to give God a dwelling place. Because David has received rest. The king said to Nathan the prophet. And this is the king, David. He's talking to Nathan the prophet. Hey, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said, go, do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Now, Nathan did not say, thus saith the Lord. Neither does the text tell us that the Lord told Nathan to say this. This is just Nathan as a prophet saying this. Hold on. What was in the heart of David? Because Nathan says, do all that's in your heart. Not most, not some, not a portion. All that's in your heart. Well, David said, it was in my heart to build a house for the Ark of the Cut. He wanted to build a temple and he even made preparations. But God said, you can't. You're a man of blood shed. Solomon will do it. But Nathan right here, before that happens, he says, go do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. Okay. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and God says, I highlighted different sections because we don't need to read the whole thing. But God here seems to be correcting what Nathan said to David. Would you build me a house to dwell in? And he goes, I haven't needed a house. I've never told any of the shepherds, why have you not built me a house? God's not bothered by it. Therefore, tell this to David. I took you essentially from nothing and I'm going to make for you a great name. Now, the name is attached to the household, the family name. God's about to say, you wanted to build me a house. I'm building you a house. Okay? God has not chosen David to build a house. Instead, God's about to say, I'm going to build your house. And through that name or that one true son of David that establishes your house, he will build a greater house for me than even Solomon's going to build. So I'll make for you a great name, like the names of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I'll plant them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more. I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, I'll raise up your offspring. I'll establish his kingdom and he'll build a house. Now, initially you think Solomon. Partially, yeah. He, like like the, the immediate partial fulfillment of this prophecy is going to be Solomon. He'll build the temple. Okay. But 
God building the house for the name of David so that a king from David always sits on the throne, that's connected to the greater son of David who's going to build a house. Because Jesus in Hebrews builds a better house than Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. Jesus actually builds the global, timeless, spiritual family and household of God. That house he builds on his sacrifice. For my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? So, again, I just wanted to show you that 1 Chronicles 28, it tells us what was in David's heart. To build a house. Nathan goes, do all that's in your heart. The Lord is with you. But the problem was, God was not with David in building a house physically. This is not David going, you know what's in my heart? To build a spiritual name and a spiritual family. This is David going, I want to build a house for God. This is not about David. This is not David going, I want to build a house for me and God. And God's going to be like, well, you can do. This is David going, I just want a house for God. And God says, sorry, buddy, that's not for you. That's for Solomon. But I'll build your house. And through Solomon, he'll build the temple, right? And then I'll bring the greater Solomon, who's the true son of David, to build the spiritual house of God. So essentially, guess what? According to these texts, Nathan did get it wrong. It doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't say the word of the Lord came to Nathan. It says, Nathan said to the king, do it. God is with you. God did not give him permission to say that. God is not giving David permission to build the actual physical house he's made preparations for. <clears throat> so yes, we have an example. We do. We really do have an example of a true, genuine prophet of God, who, by the way, is going to stay a prophet. He gets corrected because he gave a wrong word, and he presumed. And this isn't prideful rejection, rebellion, presumption. This is Nathan spoke from his own heart and said, well, the Lord is with you, but he wasn't. He didn't actually consult God in this word and make sure this seems to be Nathan speaking from Nathan's heart. And Nathan's not stoned. Nathan is not killed. Nathan continues a prophet. And he did get it wrong. Are you okay with that? That prophets of God are not infallible? They can make mistakes in the interpretation, in the application, in the actual walking it out and doing it, in the details, in the recognizing God's voice, that prophets, though they're gifted and called, are not infallible. <clears throat> Second Chronicles 12 says, Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam. Um, and this is not an example of a prophet getting it wrong. This is an example of not of God changing his mind either. This is an example of a conditional word that might make it seem like the prophet got it wrong. Shemaiah the prophet comes to Rehoboam the king. He's the king of Judah. Um, and they're gathered at Jerusalem uh, because Shishak, uh, I forget who he is. He's a king of another nation and they're going to war. Okay, so Shemaiah the prophet says, this is what the Lord says to Rehoboam and the princes of Judah. He says, you've abandoned me, so I have abandoned you to the hand of Shishak. There's no condition attached to this word. There's no, well, if it's because of this and if you this, but watch, 
There's no condition attached to this word. Just God telling Shemaiah, go tell the king and go tell the other people who are with him, hey, you abandoned me, so I've given you into the hand of Shishak. Then the princes and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. Now watch. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah. They've humbled themselves. I will not destroy them. I will grant them some deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, there'll be servants to him, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the country. So Shishak, king of Egypt, comes up. So God actually did not abandon them into the hand of Shishak to be decimated. Because they humble themselves, <clears throat> God actually gives clarification to a, to a word um, and gives details Shemaiah didn't have the first time. Shemaiah was just told, hey, God's abandoned you because you abandoned him. That's it. Peace. But then they go, the Lord is righteous. God didn't say, if you admit I'm righteous and you humble yourself, I'll change. Uh, I'll kind of like let you in on some details that I actually intended to. He doesn't do that. They just humble themselves and God goes, whoa. Hey, Shemaiah, let them know I'm not going to destroy them. I'm going to grant them some deliverance. And I'm not going to pour out my wrath through Shishak. Is that a change in the word? Is that God changing his mind? Is that the prophet getting it wrong? I don't think it's either of those. I think it's the condition wasn't revealed the first prophecy. That there's actually the potential for this prophecy to not uh, happen because it's a conditional word. Are there conditional words in scripture? Yeah. There's actually conditional promises. There's conditional prophetic words. So if they don't meet the conditions, then the prophecy or the word no longer applies to them. Therefore, they humbled themselves. The Lord is righteous. And a similar thing happens in Isaiah 38. And this is not to say prophecy uh, that, that they got it wrong, okay? I mean, we could talk about the prophetic Psalms and all that too. And the nature of how they point to Christ. Isaiah 38, Hezekiah gets sick. And guess what? Isaiah is told. The Lord says, set your house in order, you shall die. You won't recover. Hezekiah turns this very similar situation. He turns and prays, Lord, remember how I've walked in faithfulness to you. I've done what is good. Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Now this is very different, okay? The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. It's explicitly stated versus right here. Isaiah says, thus says the Lord. Is there a potential for the fact that maybe Isaiah didn't hear from God, even though he says he heard from God? I don't think the text indicates that, but it's still a possibility. Right here, it's, it's very clear. The word of the Lord did come to Isaiah here. It's explicitly stated. Go say to Hezekiah, th thus says the Lord, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life and I'll defend you in the city. So guess what? He recovered from his sickness. What did God say the first time? You shall not recover. Oops, did God actually say that? And this was a conditional promise? And Isaiah didn't know that there's potential for this word to actually be reversed because of the fact that it's conditional. Like if Hezekiah prays and, and, and like, approaches the Lord in humility, then this word that is conditional won't come to pass? Or 
Here's your second option. Did Isaiah think the Lord said this? Okay. And goes, this is what the Lord says to you. When in fact, God did not send Isaiah to say that. Because he did recover. God said he would not. God is not a liar. God did not get it wrong. So either some details were withheld the first prophecy, that it was a conditional promise, it was a conditional prophecy, or Isaiah actually spoke something the Lord did not tell him to say, and still God worked through that and allowed that to play out in Hezekiah's favor, because Hezekiah is sick, and he's wondering, am I going to get better? And Isaiah goes, you won't. But verse 4 says clearly the word of the Lord came. So there's potential for both. There's no conditions clearly stated, just a change to the intentions and previous word that was made or clarification, you might say. Okay. Now here's the last thing we'll look at. And then we're done. We're done. We're done. How do you discern when someone gives you a prophetic word that doesn't violate scripture? So, um, First, how do I know if someone says, I have a word for you, I saw a vision of you, I saw a dream of you, the Lord wants me to tell you, that kind of language. How do I start to figure out if I should pay any attention to what they're saying? Well, look at their track record with prophetic words. Look at the consistency of how truthful and, and accurate they are. Look at their heart, like, like in terms of like the fruit of the Spirit born in their life. Look at their character. Look at the lifestyle. Look at their confession about Christ and the gospel, and their theology. Look at their love for God. Look at their consistency and test everything in prayer and fast and get other wise people's opinions and feedback. And when you put all of that together, okay, don't just get one person's feedback who will confirm your bias. Don't just get someone's feedback who you know will agree with your own conclusions. No, get a lot of godly feedback. But, okay, the question becomes, who should I trust and who should I look for feedback and counsel from? Again, you evaluate all these things, their life, their track record, their love, their fruit, their confession about Christ and the gospel and their theology, their overall track record with their faith. All of that plays a role in me figuring out if I should even consider what they're saying. Okay. Once you go past that barrier and there's more of a confidence, you go, I know this person. I know their theology. I know their love for God. That doesn't mean they're infallible, but that makes them more trustworthy and more reliable. How do you discern? Well, let's take it a step further. How do you discern between a word that, or between two competing words? Jeremiah 28 is a classic case study. And then we're done. On what to do when you're presented with two competing words, if it ever happens, and both sources are really reliable and trustworthy, and you're like, I love both people, and they're so theologically sound, but they said something different. <clears throat> I, uh, Jeremiah 28 is a, the best example of what to do. In the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, Hananiah, hold on to that name, Hananiah. Everyone say, Hananiah. Wherever you are, just scream it out, Hananiah. Very different than Jeremiah, okay? Hananiah is a prophet from Gideon. 
And Jeremiah says, Hananiah spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people. Here's what he said. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel. Hananiah is claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. He says, the Lord says, I've broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, because the exiles already happened, okay? I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Oops. Hananiah is saying the opposite of what Jeremiah said. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah in the presence of the priest and all the people who are standing there. And he says, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words you've prophesied come true. And bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels and all the exiles. <clears throat> Yet hear now the word I speak in your hearing. There seems to be some, I don't know if he's entertaining it or if he's confirming it, but he does speak a different word here. Verse 7, the prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times, they prophesied war. They prophesied famine and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known the Lord has truly sent that prophet. Okay, so when the word of a prophet comes to pass, well, then you know the Lord has truly sent that prophet. The problem is that's not the only criteria to measure an actual prophet because we've already seen that false prophets can get it right and make accurate predictions that happen. Okay, so it's not just is it wrong or is it right? That's not the only criteria. But in Jeremiah's case, when it comes to <clears throat> a word actually, you know, being true, right? Well, then um, you'll know it's it was true when it actually happens. And if it's not true, then it won't happen. Um, then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck because Jeremiah is carrying these yoke bars around as a symbol against Israel going, you're under the yoke of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah took those yoke bars from the neck, broke them and said, thus says the Lord, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. King of Babylon from the neck of all the nations in two years. Now watch, Jeremiah left. He left. He didn't say anything. Why doesn't he rebuke or speak against that prophecy? Well, it says sometime after, we don't know how long, um, but it seems as though, I'm reading my notes, that before he actually reacts to Hananiah's second word, um, he actually goes and stands in the council of the Lord to seek clarity, it seems. If Jeremiah had a word to give in response to Hananiah's second word, he would have given it. But he doesn't. He actually goes his way. Maybe he's reflecting and meditating and seeking the Lord and standing in his counsel. But afterward, we don't know how long after he gets a word. 
sometime after the prophet Hananiah broke that, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, go tell Hananiah, you've broken wooden bars, but you've made in their place bars of iron. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I've put upon the neck of all these nations an iron yoke to serve King Nebuchadnezzar. I've given to him even the beasts of the field. Jeremiah <coughs> said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. Like Jeremiah didn't say that before. Why didn't Jeremiah say that before? Did Jeremiah, there are lots of things that I can be asking about this. Did Jeremiah mostly agree with the prophecy of Hananiah, right? Because he says, look, may the Lord do so and make the words that you've prophesied come true. Um, and the prophets who preceded you um, will find out. Essentially, his word to Hananiah is, we'll find out if what you said is true. He, in other words, Jeremiah doesn't even have full clarity and absolute assurance on the word Hananiah gave. Because Jeremiah um, uh, initially says, yeah, yeah, you know what? Amen. May the Lord do so. But he's also recalling the fact that most of the prophets prophesied pestilence, war, famine. So we'll see if your prophecy of peace comes to pass. <clears throat> Hananiah breaks the bars. Jeremiah goes his way. Now, does the text explicitly say that Jeremiah did not know if it was true or if, you know, Hananiah has had a track record of being a reliable prophet and now he's saying this and Jeremiah's like, but, but he has a track record and is that true? The text doesn't explicitly say any of these things. It doesn't say Jeremiah is confused. It just says he leaves, goes his way to do what? Pro possibly to get clarification and understanding uh, and, and assurance. But then the Lord speaks. And before the sign does or doesn't come to pass, God gives him another sign. And he goes, look, Hananiah has made these wooden yoke bars iron. He, Jeremiah said, look, the Lord hasn't sent you. You've made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year, you'll die. So here's a sign that validates Jeremiah. Instead of waiting two years to figure out, is Hananiah right? Jeremiah comes with a different word and they're competing with Hananiah's. The issue seems to be that Hananiah is not necessarily a false prophet up to this point, but possibly he's actually gotten some accurate words up to this point, And that's the dilemma. Hananiah said something. Jeremiah is saying something else. Well, how do we validate this and actually fix it? Well, God's going to give a sign to validate Jeremiah. What's the sign? Hananiah is going to die in a year. And guess what? Because he's uttered rebellion in that same year, Hananiah died. This right here, the fact that Hananiah uttered rebellion, that's what makes me think he is a false prophet or over time, maybe he compromised, wandered from the Lord and became a false prophet. Like maybe he started out as a true prophet and heard from God, stood in the council, but over time he stopped. Uh, kind of thinking like Judas, I don't know. The text doesn't say just that he uttered rebellion. So in this instance, he's opposing, he's rebelling against God and his word through Jeremiah, which makes Hananiah a false prophet. So how do you weigh? Well, 
it seems as though you can either wait for the sign to come to pass or not, when there's competing words, um, or you can do what Jeremiah did. And it seems as though when there's that lack of clarity and there's the difference of opinions that both seem to be speaking on behalf of God, you go away and you seek fresh revelation and you stand in the counsel of the Lord and you seek clarity and understanding and discernment. And don't just take someone at their word or just throw in the towel, but you actually go, no, Lord, I will seek you until there's clarity and understanding. And then Jeremiah gets a fresh word sometime after Hananiah brought the word. <clears throat> Does that make sense? So that's everything I found about false prophets. Everything I, I, I knew was worth talking about. Now, what we get to do in this final episode on prophecy, we might have a Q&A after, but on Friday, the final episode in this series on prophecy, we're going to actually um, talk about more of the guidelines and instructions for operating in the gift of prophecy or being <coughs> playing that role of prophet in the body of Christ or discerning through visions and dreams and, and words or I feel the Spirit is telling me this, discerning through that and coming to a more confident position and understanding. Uh, we'll talk about that in the, in the last episode, but until then, visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. That's where you can find everything about this ministry. This is the online ministry that my wife and I were called uh, uh, to start. We left California a year ago, moved here to Florida. Here we are, and we have a bunch of free resources. We have free devotional studies. We have free Bible study skills courses, free Bible study worksheets, free Bible study workshops. We have a free online church you can join. Every day there's fellowship, a community, prayer, uh, gathering, growing in faith as a body. So if you're looking for a good community of believers, come join our Discord. Um, we don't sow Discord. We use the Discord app. Uh, you can order my book, Fruitful, which is the essential keys to living the most abundant, satisfying Christian life this side of heaven. See if it focuses. Boom. You can get your copy on Amazon or you can get it on my website. This is a resource for newer believers or mature believers. It lays out the foundational truths that most believers don't know. Uh, uh, our purpose, our position, and our process all framed up by the gospel. Okay? And if you'd like to give to this ministry, this is entirely crowdfunded. This is the way I support my family, my wife and two kids. And all this content is free. The Bible studies, the workshops, the videos, the curriculums, the Bible study classes, the devotionals, the community. All of this is funded by people who are generously supporting us. And so if you want to help us move people towards Jesus, not that we can, but we trust God to do that. If you want to help us teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves um, and operate and play the, the role they're supposed to, um, you can give in a number of ways. Go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. Uh, you can give through debit or credit card. You can mail a check to P.O. Box 338, Green Cove Springs, Florida. Uh, you can give through PayPal. You can give through Cash App or Venmo. Become a monthly patron or just buy some church merch, which are linked in the YouTube video. And all these links are in the description below. If you're on TikTok, it's in my profile. If you're on YouTube, it's in the YouTube description all of this content is completely free to everyone around the world because of generous supporters like you. So join the church. Visit AboveReproachMinistry.com. Um, support us in prayer. Support us in ministry if you want to get involved and start serving with your gifts and, and build the church with us. Do it. Um, other than that, we have one more episode on prophecy on Friday. And that's going to be a cool one. So you don't want to miss it. Share this with your friends and family. Like this video so more people see it. 
and I will see you guys later. Keep moving towards Jesus, and I love y'all.